0: Well, we have been in this series where we've been talking about the fact that there is a growing number of people who are staying away and walking away from faith. And I think that's because I think there's an increasing misunderstanding both inside and outside the church about Christianity in general. And specifically, I think that there is a growing misunderstanding inside and outside the church concerning who Jesus is and what that means for me and what that means for you and what that means for us and what it means for the world. So there's a misunderstanding I think about who Jesus is. There's a misunderstanding concerning what Jesus said Lots of people know what Jesus said, but not a lot of people know what Jesus meant by what he said, and so there's a misunderstanding about what Jesus meant by what he said. And then I think that there is this growing misunderstanding about what Jesus did, specifically uh, what he accomplished through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And because people misunderstand this, both sitting where you sit and outside the church, people who attended once upon a time that no longer attend, or people who've just read about Christianity from afar, I think this growing misunderstanding about who Jesus is, what Jesus meant by what he said and what Jesus accomplished through his death and his resurrection, uh, it causes people to miss that when Jesus showed up, Jesus came to inaugurate and establish something new and something better, different than, different from the old, but better than the old. And it was better as we've been talking than anyone could have ever imagined it to be because of one word, and it's the one word we've been talking about now every week, and it's the word grace, let's just all say it together, grace. That's what we've been talking about. And when Jesus talked about grace and Jesus spoke about grace, he framed it in terms of his first century audience, specifically his Jewish disciples. He framed it in a way that they could understand it. And he referred to it as the new covenant. And so if you haven't been here or you just need to get back up with us to where we've been talking the past few weeks, if there is a new covenant, there must've been an old covenant. And the old covenant was the the laws of Moses, the command, the 10 commands and all the other commands. It was all the rules and rituals and regulations that are found in the first five books of the Bible and then reiterated throughout the book of the prophets. And so Jesus showed up and Jesus, in speaking of that covenant said, I have come to fulfill the law. That is, I have accomplished it's ultimate. ultimate purpose, I have done away with it, we're gonna file it away as old because I have come to start something new. And so what that means for us is that we have been set free We have been set free from any moral obligation, responsibility to the old covenant, the Old Testament laws, be it the 10 or be it all the others, which numbered up around 600. So we've been understanding together that we have been set free from the old covenant. It has been done away with. We have no responsibility to it because Jesus showed up to fulfill it in order to start and launch something entirely new and completely better than the old. Now, We've been talking about how dangerous it is for Christians like you and Christians like me and churches like ours and churches, you know, all around to try to take the old and mix it in with the new. And that's always a temptation. It has been since the very beginning and we can read about it through the book of Acts and we can also read about it through the letters that Paul wrote to churches just like us when he wrote to them to say, hey, you're making a big mistake. You've been set free from the old, Jesus fulfilled it, he did away with it, but you're trying to reach back to what is old and mix it into what is new. And that is a dangerous, dangerous thing and it never ends well. And so this happens all throughout the New Testament of Christians just like us, we're a bit confused about the New Covenant and its relationship to the Old and, and how are we supposed to think about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, specifically the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments, and, and the New Testament's clear. The New Testament broke ranks with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is done away with. You have no responsibility to it anymore. So what that means for you is you should lose all of your lingo that comes out of the Old Covenant. All of the ideas that come out of the Old Covenant, all of your old strategies that come out of the Old Covenant, put them away, do away with them. All your ideas about God that come from the Old Covenant, your ideas about people and particular sins, then you need to file them away under, hey, that. That does not relate to me anymore. It has been fulfilled. I'm under the new. Now, there's letter after letter, and then there's one particular letter that this entire series was actually based upon. And it's a letter that was written to a group of Jewish people who, they were under the new covenant, but they kept on wanting to go back to the old covenant. And they wanted to try to mix the two together. And Jesus was against that. Paul was against that. And we don't even know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but that person was obviously against it as well because they understood it was a very dangerous thing. And this, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. And he's talking about the mediators, the ministers, the priesthood of the old covenant. And he says that Jesus, that Jesus is the mediator of a covenant that is superior. It is superior. That is that it is greater than the old. What is new is better. What is new is greater than the old. And then he goes on to say, since the new covenant is established upon, talk to me. What's this word? Better. Better. Better promises. The old covenant was a conditional covenant with Israel based on law. It was conditional. But the new covenant was an unconditional covenant that God would make with the world based on grace. The old covenant promises were conditional. It was what you were going to do for God. But in the new covenant... They are unconditional because it's not about what you can do for God that matters, it's what God has done for you that matters. And so he says, it's better, it's superior. And then the writer of Hebrews says something that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Some of you didn't even know it was in the New Testament, but this is what the writer goes on to say. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. I heard it said just this past week that there is a part of your Bible which says another part of your Bible is obsolete and outdated. Now think about that for a moment, that there's a part of your Bible, some of you carried one in, some of you have it on your device, some of you have one at home, it's got a bunch of dust on it. (laughs) But you know the Bible and there's a part of your Bible that says the other part of your Bible is outdated and obsolete and you don't need to be a Greek scholar to know what outdated and obsolete means. He says, it's outdated, it is obsolete. That's why it's dangerous to take the old and try to mix it in with the new. And the point that Jesus would make, Paul would make, the author of Hebrews would make is, why would you ever want to reach back to something obsolete and outdated, useless, not relevant to you anymore because Jesus fulfilled it, you have no responsibility to it, why would you wanna go back and reach into the old and mix it with the new? Why would you do that? And the writer of Hebrews agrees with Jesus and Paul to say, it just doesn't make sense. So why would you want to speak in terminology that comes from the old and not the new? Why would you want to see God based on a way that comes from the old and not the new? Why would you want to approach ministry and see church and see preaching or see people in terms of what really came from the old way rather than the new way? Why would you do that? And the writer of Hebrews says, well, it just doesn't make sense because it's outdated and obsolete. And then he goes on to say that this will all soon disappear. And it did. But for those of you who know history and you know what happened after the New Testament or, you know, during the days where the New Testament was still being written to some degree, that in AD 70, Titus destroyed the temple. The Romans came into town and they destroyed the wall. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. And in AD 70, ancient Judaism ended. It was over, over, Rover. The Old Testament, Old Covenant, the way that they've been doing worship for 1400 years came to an end in AD 70. And it was just like Jesus predicted. It was just like Paul said would happen. It was just like the writer of Hebrews. In AD 70, it disappeared and it has not been practiced as such since because the old had been replaced by what was new and what was better. And so that's why we've been talking about a new covenant, a new covenant of grace. One that has no strings attached, no loopholes free of charge to everybody who doesn't deserve it. Grace that's greater than all of your sin. Grace that says God will not only forgive your sin, but God will forget your sin. And it's not about what you did, it's what God did. This new covenant and the great news, and I wanna say this every week because I just hear Christians say this all the time. If you came into this service or came into this series believing there were things that you could do to make you more anointed by God, You were thinking like the old covenant taught you to think. In the new covenant, you are just as loved as you will ever be, not because of how well you've done or how bad you've done, but because of what Jesus did. You are just as favored as what you will ever be. Because of what Jesus did. There's nothing you can do that can make God favor you more than somebody else. There's nothing you can do to make God anoint you more than somebody else. There's nothing you can do that will cause God to bless you more than somebody else. Because Jesus took care of all of that. We are blessed, loved, accepted, favored, and anointed as much as we will ever be regardless of what we do because of what Jesus did. And that's what's so great about the new covenant of grace. So we've been saying that under the new covenant of grace, there's also a new commandment. And this new commandment is a commandment of love. All the other commands have been done away with. The 10 have been done away with. All the hundreds of others, they've been done away with and they have been replaced by one. When Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. Love is the new ethic. Love is the way that we are supposed to deal with one another because that's how we've been dealt with by God. And so we've talked about the fact that when you get this right, you'll not do anything that hurts you and you'll not do anything that hurts anybody else because that's love. Love does no harm. And the rest of the New Testament, this will help us read the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament is simply commentary Illustration and demonstration on how to live out the new commandment. There's only one command in the new covenant, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commands you just need to obsolete and outdated. One commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. It is clear, it is demanding. Sometimes it makes things messy. And again, the most spiritual among us will be the people who love the best. That's how the new covenant defines spiritual. The most holy and righteous thing that you will ever do is love your neighbor as Jesus has loved you. And then last week we left off by talking about that there's this new potential, and that's the Holy Spirit, that Jesus gives us this one new command, but he doesn't leave us powerless to obey it. Jesus gave us help, that God moved out of the temple, God moved into us in the person of the Holy Spirit, and the good news that we were told last week that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that lives in us. Now think about that. If you're a follower of Jesus, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. So what does that mean? That means that you can love the unlovable. That means you can forgive the unforgivable and you can love other people no matter who they are and what they've done as Jesus has loved you because Jesus now lives within you. And not only did he give his life for us, but he gave his life to us. And so we have this brand new potential. And this is what we've been talking, this is what makes Christianity new and better. And it brings us to what we're going to talk about today, a new perspective. Because if you get these lenses on, you can't take them off. Once this gets into your head and once this gets into your heart, you'll never read the scripture, whether the old Jewish scriptures or the New Testament ever again, the same way that you used to it will give you a brand new perspective, a brand new perspective on God, a brand new perspective on people, a brand new perspective on sin, a brand new perspective on what makes what Jesus did for us so significant and new and better. And so we're gonna talk about a new perspective because what happens when we the church understand, really understand that we're under a new government, a new covenant, a new regime. The old one has been done away with. What what does it look like when we understand that there's really only one command? That's all. We've been set free from all the others and the one command is love. What does it mean when we tap into this brand new potential, the spirit living in us, Jesus wanting to live through us? What does it look like when we get that right? What will it look like for us as the Creek Church when we get this right? I'll tell you what it won't look like it won't look like what you read about in the Law and the Prophets. It will not look like what you read about throughout the Prophets, because that day has been fulfilled, it is over, it has been done away with, and now when we get this right, we're not gonna look like the Prophets because we are not living in the era of the Prophets anymore. There is not a Jeremiah anointing. There's not an Elijah anointing. There are Jesus followers filled with the Holy Spirit, loved by God, accepted by God, favored by God. When we get this right, it's not gonna look like what you read about in Kings and Malachi and Jonah and all of those books. It's gonna look like Jesus. And when we get this right, we're gonna talk like Jesus. We're gonna begin to respond to people like Jesus. We're gonna have the same ideas and beliefs that Jesus had. We're gonna approach ministry and people and life and God the way that Jesus taught us to. And the way that Jesus approached it all, we found was in one verse. I think it tells us as clear as any other verse. It says, for the law, the old was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Grace, kind, gentle, compassionate. Grace that attracts and compels. Unconditional grace, But yet truth, uncompromised truth, truth that's absolute, not relative, true in every age, true regardless of the person, true regardless of the circumstance, unchanging truth, unconditional grace. That's what Jesus dealt in. That's what Jesus had. That's what Jesus was. He was the embodiment of both grace and truth. But here's what we know. It's easy to slip into one over the other. And sometimes that can be personality driven. Some of you, you're much more on the grace side than you are the law side, except when you deal with certain people. And then you're much more on the true side than you are the grace side. That's relative to who we're dealing with. Sometimes we deal with our children more on law than grace. Sometimes we deal with our children more on grace than law. Sometimes we deal with our mother-in-laws just on law. Right. I mean, sometimes we don't ever have grace. It's just who we're talking to and what they've done and what kind of mood we're in. It's easy to slip in one over the other, but Jesus, he held on to both truth and grace and refused to let go of either one of them. He did not let truth get in the way of grace and he did not let grace get in the way of truth. And the thing that made Jesus so effective, so attractive, and what made Jesus so much better than all the other options was the fact that he was grace and truth. And when the church launched, this was a struggle for the church from the very beginning because it's easy to go into truth or go into grace and let go of one for the sake of the other. And we've been talking about that. We see that throughout the entire New Testament that it's easy for some people to want to hold on to one and let go of the other. But Jesus, he held on to both and refused to let go of either. He had grace and he had truth. And we say, wow, that sounds awesome. But it's not easy. To hold on to grace and to hold on to truth at the same time, that's a difficult, difficult thing. It got Jesus crucified. It got Jesus misunderstood. It had Jesus lied about. Jesus was a bit scandalous because he refused to let go of grace and truth. And here's what I think. Not necessarily individually, but collectively as the church, we have a much more... I think, prone approach to slip into truth and let go of grace than we do to slip into grace and let go of truth. As a church, collectively, we have always, for some reason, believed that truth was more important than grace. Matter of fact, some of you were told the truth will stand when the world is on fire. It's going to outlast everything else, so it must be superior to everything else. Even Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And so we have just taught that truth, truth trumps all. Truth does not trump all under the new covenant, truth, and grace trumps all in the new covenant. And it is a much different approach than to say that truth trumps all to then to believe that truth and grace trumps all. But the church historically, and I can take you back, I don't have time. I love it. I know you could care less about it, but I think you should care more about it. But church history teaches us that we tend to slip into law. We tend to slip on hold into, on to truth and letting go of grace much more than vice versa. Beginning back in 313 when Constantine legalized the whole thing and Christianity became vogue, it became the thing to do. What had been illegal, what had been persecuted, now Constantine declares with a single edict that Christianity is now the religion of the empire. Christians moved out of the catacombs, moved into the cathedrals, now we've got smoke, now we've got pomp and circumstances, we've got choir, we got robes baby, this is the place to be, now it's advantageous to be Christian and the church is flooded, it's growing and what went about 9% of the population Population is now about 52% of the Roman Empire population that becomes Christian almost overnight because now it's easy to do. And just a few years after that in 325, this is about 300 or so years after Jesus died, Constantine, he organizes a council and out of that council is a creed that's gonna be produced called the Nicene Creed. And if you came out of Protestant mainline churches, you you probably recited that. Some of you, you know what I'm talking about, but it's this long creed that was taken from the Apostles' Creed. And it's all about what we believe because they were responding to a group of people who didn't believe some things were true that were really true. And they believed some things to be true that weren't true. And so they got the council together and they said, hey, we gotta talk about truth here. And we've got to define and defend, and we've got to exalt truth. And what you will not find in the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed is anything about grace or anything about love your neighbor, even though Jesus said it was the most important thing. A bunch of things about we believe God, we believe the Son, we believe the Holy Spirit, we believe in the universal church, we believe in the resurrection from the dead. You know, all of those things, and those are true. But all of a sudden, from that point on, it was like we held on to truth, but we kind of let go of grace. Because in just 50 years, Theodosius, and I know you don't care, but you just got to track with me for a moment. Theodosius was the last emperor of the unified Roman Empire. And Theodosius made Christianity a matter of empirical decree. That is, become Christian or die. Now, not surprising, baptism numbers went up. Church grew, babe. It was big time. All of a sudden now, it was all about, hey, do you believe this is true and become a Christian? Yes. Okay, come on. Do you believe this is true and will you become a Christian? No. All right, then you're dead. Whole bunch of truth, not a bunch of grace. And then you fast forward to the 800s and a guy by the name of Pope Leo, he pulls aside a guy by the name of Charles Augustus, Charles the Great, who we call in history Charlemagne. And on Christmas, you know, in the 800s, he declared that Charles Augustus, Charles the Great, was emperor of what we now call in history, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And Charles was quite the evangelist. Matter of fact, lots of people, nations, converted to Christianity because of Charlemagne and his military conquest. And he also converted people, not at gunpoint, but sword point. Hey, will you convert? If not, you're gonna die. And, and on one day, to said to Charlemagne that he killed 4,500 people, he beheaded them, because their tribal people would not convert to Christianity. So he beheaded them, and after he beheaded them, he went back to camp and he celebrated Christmas. Because you can do that when you put truth over grace. But stuff like that disappears when it's truth and grace. October 31st, 1517, we'll celebrate 500 years of it this year. The Protestant Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the doors there in Wittenberg. And all of a sudden, there was a schism in the church, and Roman Catholicism went here, and Protestants were born over here. And Martin Luther was fed up because of the corruption of Rome and the corruption of the church. And then they moved to Geneva, and now, you know, they, they're trying to go back to true theology. And in Geneva, what ended up happening? These new Protestants that broke from the church end up persecuting the Anabaptists, they burned them at the stake because of truth, and we let go of grace, Puritans, Puritans, they're going to have their coming over in England, and the Catholics, and led by Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary's going to, she's going to burn about 300 of them at the stake, because of truth, or lack of truth, England's going to break with Rome, and That's gonna be a whole big deal. And then the Puritans, they're gonna look for a new land. They're gonna come here, right? And they're they're gonna hold on to their version of truth. And when they come here, guess who they find? They find the Quakers and they kill the Quakers and they drill holes in the Quakers tongues over truth. As explorers went west, we drug native Indians into churches and we chained them to the pews to make them listen to the truth. Because when we hold on to truth, we let go of grace. It is who we have been in history. It's who we will be in our future if we don't understand. This is new. It is better. There's one commandment. It is love. And now it is the perspective of grace and truth trumps all. Not truth trumps all or grace trumps all. And what we find from history is this right here. When we value truth over grace, we end up hurting our neighbor rather than loving our neighbor. That's what happens every single time. When people like me get up and I try to convince my pastor friend down the road that I'm as conservative as he is, that I'm as bold in the pulpit as he is, I get up and I'll mistreat people with my words. I'll be a bully with my words. I'll be a smart aleck with my words. I will hurt people with my words to convince people who believe what I believe, that I believe what they believe and that I'm a holder on to truth. And churches do that. Since 325, we have been defining and defending truth. We have been trying to out-truth our Christian neighbors, but we haven't been so busy trying to out-grace our Christian neighbors. And some of you have been led to believe that you hold on to truth at all costs. No, 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 no. You hold on to truth just like you hold on to grace and you refuse to let go of either one of them because that's what Jesus did. So what does it look like? Well, I think there's one event in the life of Jesus that teaches us what this looks like. It's an event that happened at the Jewish temple. And for those of you who've never been to Jerusalem, those of you who who don't know much about the Jewish temple, what you need to know about the Jewish temple is that it is the epicenter of everything Jewish in the first century. It is the activity of God on earth. Matter of fact, that's where God dwelled, was there at the temple. This is where people went every day to offer sacrifices, to seek absolution, to seek restoration with God, to have forgiveness for their sins. This this was the center of your faith if you were a Jewish person. It was the Jewish temple. And the story that we're gonna talk about out of the life of Jesus, it happens at the Jewish temple. And it's at this Jewish temple where everybody was used to going. Many people would go there daily to offer sacrifices for their sins. The temple was a perpetual reminder that you have broken the law of God and you have to pay the penalty for breaking the law of God. This is where this incident takes place and John records it and this is what John says. John says, at dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts. Now, that means that he was there the day before. And at the end of the day, He either slept over there at the Mount of Olives offside the Eastern Gate and he slept there or he crossed over the Mount of Olives and went to Bethany and he stayed at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We don't know, but he was there the day before. He was close enough. He was there at dawn, maybe before the sun even came up. And it says, while he was there, the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Now, here's a little bit about what had happened already that day at dawn. Jesus is there first thing in the morning. First thing in the morning. But before Jesus would have gotten there, the first people that would have gotten there that day were the priests. And when the priests showed up that day, the first thing that they would have done would have been washed themselves. They would have immersed themselves in washing pools. And they would have become ceremonially clean because they understood that they needed to be clean and they would wash themselves in order to be a mediator for someone else, in order to minister on somebody else's behalf. So the first thing that they would have done when they got to the temple that morning is they would have submerged themselves in water and they would have washed themselves. Then they would have robed themselves and then they would have broken up into little companies of priests and they would have gone all over the temple complex to try to find if all 93 sacred articles or 93 sacred pieces that were needed to conduct temple business and temple worship was actually in place. And once they located all 93 and made sure that everything was exactly the way it was supposed to have been, they would have went to the altar because the altar was at the center of everything that happened at the temple. They would have gone and they would have lit, you know, a couple of different wood piles on fire because there was already one particular fire that never went out. It was the fire of perpetuality. It was always to be burning, but they would have burned a couple of other fires because there were going to be sacrifices that were offered there and animals would be laid up on that altar and they would be burnt as a payment for the penalty of sin and for the absolution and the forgiveness of sin. And so they're getting everything ready. And then once everything was ready, they would have opened the doors Business would have been open, so to speak. The merchants would have come in. You know, Jesus overturned the money changers. There were merchants there, business people there. that were selling turtle doves and selling lambs and ox and, and, and goats and just all of these animals that people could purchase and then offer to God as a sacrifice so they could be forgiven for their sin. And so this is a busy place. It's a noisy place. It's a smelly place. Animals are being burned. I mean, there's just lots of things going on, and this was normal everyday activity if you were a Jewish person. Jesus was used to this, and everybody else that would be there that day was used to this because this was a reminder of their perpetual guilt before God. And this was the place where you made payment for the sins that you were guilty of. Now, Here's a little bit of what it looks like, because I want you just to have a little bit of appreciation. This was a scale model that uh, you could take a picture of at one of the museums. And and this is the temple itself, and this is the Eastern Gate. And right back here, this is the Southern, the Southern porch, this is the Southern wall, and there were Southern steps, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But this is a little bit of a closer view of the temple, this next one. And and this gives you a little bit of an idea. All this area right here, just so you know, all the way around the temple, is called the Court of the Gentiles, because if you were a Gentile, you couldn't enter into the actual temple proper. You couldn't come through those doors if you were a Gentile. You had to stay out here uh, along the court of the Gentiles. But if you were a Jewish woman, you could go further than the Gentiles. But if you were a Jewish male, then you could go further than the Jewish women. Now you could only go into this part if you were a priest because that's where the priests did all of their duties and and all of that. And then here was the holiest of holies. That was the place that God lived. That was the place where God dwelled and only one man, the high priest, day of atonement, Yom Kippur. That was the one day of the year that he could go in there. And so this is where Jesus is at this particular moment. He's somewhere out here and he's teaching a group of people. Now if you went to Jerusalem today, you, you would find this wall, this, this next picture. This is what is left of the Southern wall, right? And you can see it there on the screens better than here, but this is, this is the Southern wall. And down here are the Southern steps and you can still walk on the same steps that existed from the day when Jesus walked there. And what we need to understand is, for the sake of understanding this story, is that most every single person that would have come to the temple would have walked up the Southern stairs through the Southern steps. Now, I was there and this was one of my favorite parts of when I got to go to Israel because they showed us the little ritual baths that are all alongside of the Southern steps. When people came to the temple, like the priest, they would stop at the little washing bath pools and they would get in and they would wash themselves as a reminder, you are guilty, you are filthy, you need to be clean. Then you would walk up the southern steps and you would walk through the southern gate and their priest would sprinkle you with the ash of the red heifer. Again, an act of purification so that you could bring yourself into this holy place, this temple. Again, another reminder, you are guilty, you are dirty, dirty, you are filthy. And so that's how almost every single person besides the priest would have gotten into the temple. Most likely that's the steps Jesus walked up. That's the steps the people that are there listening to Jesus. And every other person that day is going to walk up the southern steps through the southern gate. So John goes on and says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Champions of the law of Moses, experts of the law of Moses brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And then they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of, that is in the throes of, we caught her with her hand in the cookie jar. She is guilty, we saw her. Now this is why this is important. This this is why John, what he records about this story is so important. There were so many laws about adultery, and we'll talk about it in just a moment, but if you were gonna be punished for committing adultery, there had to be witnesses, and there had to be more than one witness, and there were so many laws that were so particular about being a witness in someone's trial of adultery. There had to be multiple witnesses, and those witnesses, they had to be able to testify to the same thing, and so there's all these witnesses. They've got this woman. Now, a word about this woman. She is nothing more than a pawn in their game. That's all she is. And ladies, let me just say this. In a culture that talks so much about gender equality, no one has ever done anything more for gender equality and for women than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Nobody introduced to the mindset of humanity then or now the equal value equal dignity of both male and female. Because matter of fact, if you were Jewish and you were male, you woke up every day and you thank God for three things. You thank God, number one, you weren't born a slave. And then you thank God that you weren't born a Gentile, that's us. And then the third thing you thank God for was that you were not born a woman. This woman is a pawn in their game. They don't care about this woman. She's just a piece of property, she's less than. She's bait in their trap. She is a means to an end. And so they have caught her in the act of adultery as the culture would have stated. They would have ripped open her robe, exposed her breast, and they would have dragged her. Now get this, they would have dragged her up those southern steps, past the washing pools. They would have dragged her through the southern gate where they were sprinkling people with the ash of the red heifer. They would have dragged her through all of that. And they would serve as witnesses against her. Now, again, those witnesses had to be very particular. The Old Testament says, hey, if you commit adultery, you're to be put to death. Now, actually, what we'll see in a minute is that the Old Testament actually says both the man and the woman should be put to death. But guess who's missing from this picture? Obviously, he was faster with his pants around his ankles than they thought. Or he was part of it. He was part of this plan. He was part of this prearranged thing that we're going to discover is actually the case in just a moment. But imagine the guilt and the shame of this woman. It's one thing to be guilty and to know what that feels like, it is another thing to be caught and guilty. And this woman is fearful of her life. And they drag her to Jesus. And as Jesus is teaching, they said, In the law. Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And this is what we're gonna discuss. It's a trap. They're telling the truth. This woman was guilty and she deserved death in their mind. Matter of fact, the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 22, Leviticus 20 said, hey, put her to death along with the man, but the man's not there, but put her to death. What do you say, Jesus? What do you think we ought to do? And here they are, champions of the law, experts of the law. They bring this lawbreaker to Jesus. And they said they were using this question, John said, to trap. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Because they didn't want Jesus to have the popularity of the people. They were scared that they were losing the popularity of the people. They were going down in the polls. Jesus was going up in the polls. They were using this as a trap to Jesus. Then it goes on. Look at this next one. But Jesus, he bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. So Jesus pulls out his first century etch-a-sketch and it's like he ignores them. He ignores them and they say, Jesus, what are you gonna do about this? What do you say about this? Because in this moment, they're pitting justice against mercy. This is justice v mercy. This is truth versus grace. This is grace versus law. What we now know, this is old versus new. This is God versus Rome. This is gentleness versus righteousness because if Jesus said, yes, let's stone her, he would have had a problem with Rome because Rome didn't allow the Jewish folks to carry out executions. If Jesus would have said, yeah, let's stone her, all the sinner people that followed Jesus Jesus around because he was a friend to sinners would have left because they would have been scared for their life. If Jesus would have said, no, let her go, he would have been breaking the law of Moses. And so Jesus was in this moment where the question was, who is Jesus going to side with? Who is Jesus going to side with in this story? Is he going to side with Moses? Or is he going to side against Moses? Is he going to side with God or is he going to side with Rome? Who is Jesus going to side with? What's it going to be? Is he going to go with justice or is he going to go with mercy? And it goes on, it says, when they kept on questioning him, as Jesus is just down there doodling, some people say that Jesus was writing the 10 commandments. Some people say he was writing their secret sins. We, we, don't, we don't know what he was saying, but then he stood up and he said, and this is the part that you remember, let any of you who is talk talked to me without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. Maybe he doodled or wrote in the ground, whatever he did, and, and maybe he just paused for a moment. And maybe he looked around to make a point. And maybe in that moment, he tried to remind all of them where they were. They were in the temple of God, a place where guilty people come to offer sacrifices to God, to receive atonement and restoration with God. Perhaps he was hoping that they would be reminded of how many times they have walked those southern steps, washed in those pools, walked through that gate, been sprinkled by the ash of the red heifer as they would come themselves to offer a sacrifice for their own sin. And then he just says, how many of you are without sin? So go ahead. Those of you without sin, cast the first stone. Maybe with the sound of slaughtered animals in the background. The smell of burnt animals in the background. The temple, a perpetual reminder of guilt and sin and shame. And the irony in this moment was unmistakable because the only one in the crowd without sin was the only one in the crowd without a stone. The only one without sin, was the only one without a stone. And that was Jesus. And what we're reminded of is that we can be a lot like those men with stones in their hand. And you know what? It's true for me and it's true for you. We tend to love the parts of the law that we don't struggle with. And we tend to to love the parts of the law that we're currently not guilty of. Because we can get mad at people about that. And we tend to like to stone people who have broken the laws that we are currently keeping. And law, law always leads us, the old always leads us to being more angry about other people's sin than we are our own sin. That's why we like it when our people get on TV. And throw it at them. That's why we like petitions. That's why we like legislation. That's why we like to lobby. That's why we like blogs that go on and on about it. That's why we write books about it. Preach sermon series. Because it seems like we're just mad at some people. And it just happens to be the things we're not currently struggling with. He says, so. Y'all without sin. Because under the old law. The laws of Moses. The witnesses. The witnesses had to be the ones who threw this first stone. They think this woman deserves death. That's why they brought her there. They know the penalty for her sin is death. That's why they brought her there. And Jesus said, those of you without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. I'm not telling you to let her go. <laughs> and I'm not telling you to stone her. That's the beauty of Jesus. Let me tell you, if we had to make up Jesus, we would not have been smart enough to do so. We could have never created him. We would have let him go one way or the other. But Jesus refused to let go of either. It says, again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard Heard what? Him say, those of you without sin, cast the first stone. Those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, because they had racked up the most frequent flyer mileage. <laughs> They're like, mm, i like to know how many goats I've slaughtered in my life. Turtle doves. They started to go away first until only Jesus was left with the woman who was still standing there. There was something about the tone, the presence, the disposition of Jesus, which caused them to let go of the penalty that they thought she deserved. And they began to walk away. And so now Jesus and the woman are left. And it says, Jesus straightened up And he asked her, now, here's here's what I love. They only talked to her. And they only talked about her sin. Jesus is the only one who talks to her in spite of her sin. Has no one condemned you? In other words, who is it that brought you here and demanded that you pay for your sin? Who is it that condemns you? Who is it that brought you to this place to say that you need to make a penalty, a sacrifice that you need to lose your life for the sake of the fact that you're guilty? Who is that? Who's done that? And as she stands there disheveled, shaking, fearful, dusty from being dragged through the streets and up the steps and into the temple, who is forcing you, ma'am, to pay for what you've done? and she looks around and she says, no one, sir. Or as some translations say, no one, Lord. No one is forcing me to pay for what I'm guilty of. And then some of you need to hear this as though he's saying it to you. And some of you need to hear this and learn how to say it to someone else. Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. I will not force you to pay for your sin. And if Jesus would have wanted to, he could have said, and the reason I'm not gonna force you to pay for your sin is because a few steps from here, I'm gonna pay for your sin. I'm gonna take your sin, your adultery, your sin and i'm gonna die in your place and i'm not gonna force you to pay for what i have come to pay for myself neither do i condemn you neither do i con- he's not angry she broke the law he's not angry He didn't see her as breaking the law as much as he saw her as breaking herself against the law. No one, sir. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. We want Jesus to say, neither do I condemn you. But some of us, we don't wanna hear Jesus say, now go leave your life of sin. Jesus will never stop saying, neither do I condemn you. He will never, ever also stop saying, go and leave your life of sin. Truth and grace. Refusing to let go of one for the sake of the other. He did not let truth get in the way of grace and he did not let grace get in the way of truth. Neither do I condemn you. But go and leave your life of sin. And in this moment, we see the perspective of Jesus. How he thinks of sin. How he sees sin. He hates sin. Not because it's sin, but he hates sin because of what sin does to those he loves. That sin hurts and sin steals and still, you know, sin kills and destroys. That he hates sin for what it does to those that he loves. So go. Stop breaking yourself. Stop hurting yourself. Stop hurting other people. Neither do I condemn you, but leave your life of sin. It may be the hardest thing that you ever have to do, but leave your life of sin. It may be the most painful thing that you ever do, but leave your life of sin. You may not want to, you may feel like you can't, but go and leave your life of sin. And if you don't, and if you feel like you can't, I'm never gonna stop saying to you, neither do I condemn you. Nor will I stop saying, go and leave your life of sin. A new perspective on sin and on people. He knew her story. We don't. He knew what brought her to that bed, to that moment, to that decision. He understood it. And it brought him to the place where he said, neither do I condemn you and leave your life of sin. He exposed her guilt, which opened her hands so he could slip grace in. And God can only place grace in hands that are open with guilt. Jesus tore down all the classifications. There's no longer righteous and unrighteous, but in this story, there's unrighteous, those who admit it and those who deny it. And what we see is that when the love of God is extended to those who have broken the law of God, you call that grace. And when who you are is more important than what you have done, call that grace and when we get this right the church will learn how to say with the tone the disposition the compassion the gentleness and the conviction of jesus neither do we condemn you but go and leave your life of sin when we get this right we'll see sin not as political not for what it means in my world but because it's hurting someone that Jesus died for. It will change everything when you hold on to grace and you hold on to truth and you refuse to let go of one for the sake of the other. Father, that's hard to do. But God, this would change the church. This would change marriages. Would change families. Would change the world. It's easy to hold on to truth and let go of grace, and sometimes it's easy to hold on to grace and let go of truth. But God, thank you that you are a Savior who said, neither do I condemn you. you can go and leave your life of sin. Help us to get this right as a church. Because God, (laughs) this is so good. Too good sometimes, it seems to be true. At times, too good not to be true. But God, certainly, what Jesus introduced was new. It was better. Help us to receive this on a personal level. Help us to give this grace and truth to our relationships. Help us to present it to the world. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, you felt like you were never good enough, you felt like you couldn't do it, maybe today you would say, Father, thank you for loving me, for dying in my place. Today, I wanna follow Jesus from now on. For those of us who may have become self-righteous and we've got stones in our hand and we've been throwing them at people, Let's throw those stones down. Let's hold on to grace and truth. Let's get this right. Father, speak to us. In Jesus' name.